This is Contact Mike. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Doe. It's August. It's August. It's a podcast about the things that make us human. Moments of change, indecision and, well, well, contact. Contact. Contact Mike is a monthly podcast by Sarah Walker. A series of unusual noises. And Flo Kilpatrick. There she is with her fireman with tattoos delivering her birthday cake. It's produced by Kieran Ruffles. You're not actually the worst human, so it's fine. And it's going to start. It's going to start. Now. now. Chapter 1 This month in your world, staffers carried an Indian politician through ankle-high floodwater. He was inspecting the flood-affected villages of Madhya Pradesh, where 15 people had died. His crisp white pants and white shoes remained spotless. This month in your world, a couple decided to give things a shot long distance. From across the ocean, they beamed at each other over Skype. This month, a missile flew 500 kilometres to splash down into the Sea of Japan. Kim Jong-un said the flight was the greatest success and put North Korea in front rank of nuclear military powers. Elsewhere, in another ocean, a sea lion surfaced a metre away from a startled diver. The two looked at each other for a moment, then the animal uttered one impatient, fish-flavoured bark and dived again. This month, an Israeli study found that jellyfish, like the tides, respond to the moon. They swarm the beaches when it's full and are sucked into the country's major power station, which uses ocean water for cooling. So this month in your world, we'll paint a picture. A full moon shone, a jellyfish died, and the lights in a small Israeli town flickered and went out. Chapter 2 You know, growing up as a kid and wanting to play, I want to go and play. Or as a young teenager, I want to go to the movies or whatever. It's like, well, no, you have to do this and you need to learn these songs and you need to learn these dances. It's like, okay, like as a child, yes, fun, yay, we get to dance, sing. And then as you're growing a bit older but still not understanding, like because you're still grasping, I suppose, Mm -hmm. the, the enormity of it and what it actually means to continue that knowledge on and continue the history and singing and dancing. That was, yeah, about your culture, about my culture. This is Muriel Spiram. I am a Kuma Murawari Gamilaray woman from northwest New South Wales. Muriel is now and always has been an actor, dancer, singer and activist. She can't even remember the first protest her family took her to. Activism has always been part of her world, even a part of the landscape. Can you describe that land? Maury. Yeah. Has anyone heard of Maury? Yeah. I yeah. actually remember because there was quite a big thing uh, in the 60s with the swimming pool. So it's actually got a really big place in like Indigenous activism history. Wow. It does. The year was 1965 and Charles Perkins led a group of students on the Freedom Rides. Basically, there were uni students from Sydney University and they got a bus and they stopped off in different towns. One of the towns they stopped at was Moree and we went to the Moree swimming pool because they wouldn't let Aboriginal people swim mm. 
So they were trying as a group to draw attention to segregation and campaign for equal rights. Yes. The students were met with bile and violence. Charles Perkins picked up a group of Aboriginal kids from the mission and tried to get them into the Moree pool through lines of townspeople screaming abuse and waving placards. So that's you from around Moree. So that's where I'm from. (laughs) Yes. Exactly. It's actually mind-blowing that your people are seen that way. You know what I mean? That that kind of action is fine, that that's okay. And the thing is that that kind of segregation or racism is still present today. It's not necessarily that ex- in that extreme form, but it's still prevalent. You know, it's still happening here and now. By the time she was a teenager, Muriel was living with family in Brisbane. She went to TAFE to study acting and fell in love. Yeah, I just fell in love with performing and storytelling and transforming, I suppose, and going into other worlds. Her father was a poet, writer and musician. Um, I grew up with him and my aunties and um, learning my traditional song and dance, Gamilaray. Yeah, it's like connecting back to my Gamalu Bidawi, which is like beginning of time in my language. Connecting back to my ancestors, connecting back to my home through story and dance. And that's what my people have done, told stories through dance and song and so... It's just, I guess, the natural progression for me into the Western performing world. How old were you when you first came to VCA? I was 18. So little. Had you ever been to Melbourne before? Never. Never been to Melbourne before. Never lived out of home before. Yeah, so it was really like a culture shock. Like I didn't know the mob here. I didn't see a lot of our mob or Aboriginal people around. So that was very isolating. In 2007, Muriel arrived at the Victorian College of the Arts. She was the first Aboriginal person to come to the drama school in a decade. For any 18-year-old, moving across the country to study is big, and VCA was one hell of a place to be thrown into. It was really challenging in terms of like being in a very institutionalised Western kind of schooling system, even though it was like in a like arts structure, I suppose. I remember yours being a very full-on group like of amazing actors who were yes. so many of them are doing amazing things but it was a it was an intensely competitive environment. Yeah, very <laughs> very very much so. Yeah. It's very very competitive. You know, middle class, upper class kind of there were weren't very many people that were from a low economical um <laughs> upbringing yeah (laughs) so there was that dynamic as well then there was also people who'd never actually met an aboriginal person before did they tell you that did they yes how does that conversation go had an aboriginal friend in primary school which is funny because a lot of people often quite say that be like oh i went to primary school with an aboriginal person (laughs) cool story nice (laughs) had a pat on the back well done (laughs) yeah yeah When Muriel was in second year, a new girl arrived at drama school and things suddenly changed. Seriously, that was so amazing to have um, Irene Masterstavis, deadly Gugotha woman from Sedona, I say. Yeah, it was so good to have her come to the drama school. 
Did you guys just like see each other on the first day and just like lock in? How did that meeting go? Um, Well, because the Willand Centre, which is the Aboriginal centre there at VCA, um, they were like, oh, yeah, there's this uh, new student coming to the drama school. And I was like, yes. (laughs) And we were just like basically two peas in a pod (laughs) and inseparable. (laughs) So, yeah, and a really good support network for one another as well when kind of, I guess, white privilege would come up. VCA is intense and it is hard. It is three years locked in a building with a tiny group of people you love and hate and snog and yell at and grow up with and make beautiful art with. And then you are out there, outside that garish-coloured building and no longer wrapped in the protective blanket of education. So getting out of that space of being like so determined to achieve and succeed and then suddenly being thrust into the real world of acting, what was that like? Yeah, it was definitely challenging graduating and having the leisure, I suppose, of practising your craft every single day and then actually exactly being thrusted into the industry and and the harshness of that in that it's job to job, you know. The reality is that you're not necessarily going to be able to practice your work every day and act every day and that was definitely challenging, like that transition out, then finding out where you fit in the world and, and kind of like how to approach what it is that you want to achieve in your creative path. So, yeah, that was definitely challenging, like, oh, what do I do now? But um, as I was coming out, I was in a place of like, yes, 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 I'm going to take whatever comes my way and I'm going to just go with it. Are there roles that you keep getting or keep getting put forward for? Well, absolutely, obviously, the obvious, like the Aboriginal role, that's Mm. like given. But what is that role like? Is there a stereotype that you keep getting asked to portray? Uh, Well, I suppose, yeah, yeah, definitely, like... (laughs) Yeah, okay, I guess I've um, been a, a drunk, been, like, hung, been raped, been, um, yeah, yeah, alcohol, drugs, kind of dependent. Um, yeah, all of the, those type of stereotypical, I guess, roles of what an Aboriginal person is perceived as being. How does it feel to be asked to act those stereotypes? The projects that I did decide to do, they were very supportive. They wanted to make sure they were doing it the right way, if Mm. that makes sense. Yeah. Created a safe space to go into those roles, all those worlds. That's actually kind of encouraging to hear that at least people are kind of providing safe and kind of respectful structures for you as an actor to explore those kind of experiences because I think the industry generally is not very good at taking care of people's hearts and feelings. Exactly. I have been very lucky in that sense. So there's been like both extremes where it's like, yeah, we've been really supported and then, oh, shit, well, I'm left in this space and I've got to go home and how do I then let go of that Mm. when things that I'm talking about or reenacting are actually still happening for my people. Everyday racism is still such a big part of Muriel's life that sometimes she barely notices it. 
When Uncle Jack Charles, on the day he was awarded Victorian Senior Australian of the Year, was refused a taxi moments after accepting the award, there was a massive uproar. People were shocked that this could still happen to such a well-loved and respected member of our community. But Muriel wasn't shocked. But the thing is, it's just so normalised. It's so normalised within our society. People don't even realise it's happening. Like as in, I go into a shop with my white friend and just kind of, you know, look around. Be like, oh yeah, that's really nice, whatever. And then she'll be like, did you just see that? And I'll be like, what are you talking about? She's like, that person's just been following you for the last, I don't know, since you walked in the door. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, okay. And, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, Mm. it's like, it's so normalised within my life that it's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to walk into shop. I'm going to be followed. Mm. Uh, I'm going to go to a taxi. There's a high chance that taxi is not going to stop for me. Muriel barely notices anymore if people stare at her. So normal, yeah. Sometimes I'm like, I'm like, why are people looking at me? Like, mm. what's what, what? 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 Have I got like something in my face or like? Oh, okay, okay. I'm kind of like fucking with their head a little bit here in terms of what they think an Aboriginal person should be. Mm. Okay, for my twenty-first birthday, right? I had this really flash dress on. <laughs> And I went to the markets mm. in the flash dress because whatever, I was just wearing it because it was my birthday. 21st, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was walking through the markets, it was all good. These people were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we went swimming. In the middle of the day, Muriel borrowed her friend's clothes to go swimming, shorts and a T-shirt, the kind of clothes you would wear if you decided on a spontaneous swim on your 21st. It was just like tracky shorts, a T-shirt, and then it was really hot, so I was just walking around in that. Went back to the same markets and the same people and then being like... Ignoring me. Wow. Completely ignoring me. Mm. And, um, yeah, not wanting me in their little stall. I was like, oh, okay. That's an aspect yeah. of white privilege that I think we don't vocalise often is the privilege to walk around looking a bit shit. Yeah. Like, I can't so walk true. down my street in trackies and a hoodie and my sneakers without people grabbing their wallets or moving away from me because they think I'm going to, I don't know, steal off them, you know, or um, ask for money. And then there's alcohol, which comes with its own privileges. Absolutely. Like um, Like white privilege (laughs) is the privilege to be like smashed off your face if you want. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) If you you want to, yeah, in Mm. public. And um, also just being in a group, Mm. in a group. (laughs) Of mm. Aboriginal people <laughs> and entering a bar. Mm. Dum, 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 dum. <laughs> you know, like, and yeah. just seeing everyone be like, <gasps> as a group of They're like, people mass. over there, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I keep seeing these amazing photos these days of you uh, as like just a badass babe activist. Yeah. Like, you're doing a lot of activism these days. What drew you into that and what issues are you most passionate about right now? Um, oh, uh, what drew me into it? Oh, well, um, it's just, it just is. It's like I'm fighting for our people, you know, I'm fighting for myself, I'm fighting for uh, my brothers and sisters, I'm fighting for, like, 
the future generation. I'm fighting for the people who fought before me. Um, you know what I mean? Like it, it's, it just is. It's not like how did I suddenly become a part of this or fall into it? It's just always been. And like my family are quite political as well, like within Aboriginal kind of activism. So it's, I guess, in an essence, always been a part of my, my life. When we were kids, activism looked like bodies placing themselves in public view. It looked like letters to the editor and politicians. And it relied on conventional media to tell the world that you'd placed your body on that street or posted that letter. Today, activism is more self-sufficient. And when the conventional media is the one that needs to be called out, social media is there to call it out. As we saw recently when The Australian published a hugely offensive comic by the cartoonist Bill Leake. It featured a police officer presenting a young Indigenous boy to his father by the scruff of his neck, saying, you'll have to sit down and talk to your son about personal responsibility. The father, clutching a can of beer, responds, yeah, righto, what's his name then? To add insult to injury, the comic was published on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Day. Social media responded with a hashtag. It was really interesting watching the response to that on social media because everyone was like, just condemned it because it was awful. And then this hashtag popped up on Twitter, which was hashtag Indigenous Dads. And it was people sharing images and stories of their fathers and how extraordinary and wonderful and caring and brilliant they were. And it was such a beautiful, kind response to a really horrible thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because the way to combat hate is not with hate or fear with fear it's with love and that's the way that's gonna empower and move the people forward and move us forward and strengthen us because if we come with hate and with fear that's just gonna you know divide and conquer which is what has been kind of the strategy I suppose of the kind of capitalism is to divide and conquer so, yeah, that's like just, I guess, a great example of people, people, yeah, people power and people love and going, wow, that's really, f- you know, <sighs> like, that's just really sh- such a horrible thing to do. And really, doesn't it just say so much about him as an individual mm. and not necessarily just him, but also the people that said it was okay to publish that, that it's okay to put that, I guess, propaganda out there, you know? It's such a big question, but I wonder if you can say what being an Indigenous woman means to you today. It's family, it's culture, it's heritage, it's history, it's past, it's present, it's future. It's all in one. You can't have one without the other. It informs every part of who you are. And um, I love being Aboriginal. I love being an Aboriginal person, Aboriginal woman. It has its challenges, definitely, like, constantly having to fight. It's a fight, it just never stops. Just constantly, constantly, always fighting for justice, justice in your own country, constantly having to be strong and and to keep going and to persevere and to laugh and, you know, find joy in amidst of all the shit and all the chaos that's been thrown at you constantly, you know, with 
children still being taken, people dying in custody, people being tortured, brutally tortured. So, you know, it's a lot to even just walk out of the house some days. But you do anyway, because you have the power of your people behind you. Chapter three. Last year was the first time that anyone had ever flat out pointed out to me that I was a beneficiary of privilege. And it it didn't throw me, it was just, I was kind of astonished it had never happened before. I was interviewing a filmmaker who was an Asian woman. I can't remember what she was talking about, but she sort of said offhandedly, oh, well, obviously it's easy for you because you're white. And I was like, oh, no one's ever pointed that out to me before. And that's kind of ludicrous that no one's ever pointed that out to me. And I had this sudden moment of kind of feeling this gulf between us where I was like, oh God, your experience of the world is actually so different from mine in ways that I've never considered. And I think it's good to be reminded of that. I remember talking to you about being approached in the street. People often come up to me and ask me questions as though I know what's going on. People come up and ask for directions or if there's some event going on, ask me what's happening. And I said, oh, I don't know why people do that to me. And you said, well, it's because you're a white woman. Mm. You're so unthreatening. And I had never thought about that before. I would never realised that my presence in public is a completely non-threatening one because I'm not a minority. I was having this conversation with my friend recently and she is of Indian descent and her family is just like hundreds of generations back all in the same place in India. She is just like, in her words, thoroughbred. (laughs) uh, She's like, my husband's DNA is the first new DNA to enter this family in forever. And we were talking and I said that I had this realisation recently that I 100% identify as a white person. That wasn't a revelation, but I realised I identify as a white person with a Middle Eastern grandmother and that when I hear people talk about Middle Eastern people in a really dehumanising way, I don't go, that's my heritage you're talking about. I go, that's my grandmother's heritage. I feel quite strangely cut off Mm -hmm. from that. And I think a large part of that is because, you know, my family came out from the Middle East at a time when you just assimilated as Mm -hmm. fast as you can and you just cooked meat and three veg and you didn't, speak your language outside of the home because there was no one else in Gippsland to talk Arabic with. But I I said this to Sonia and she just had this moment where she just sat there and was like, wow, I just realised that one day I'll probably have grandchildren that look like you. And that after centuries of us all kind of looking the same and having this exact same DNA, I might one day have a grandchild saying, I have an Indian grandmother. and not necessarily identifying in, as Indian in the same way that I do. Yeah. And I was like, oh, God, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm sure, like, you're so proud of your heritage and you will, oh, I'm sorry for having, giving you that existential crisis at this <laughs> moment over, over lunch at Brunetti's. Um, but it was an amazing thing just to see this, this thought fall into her head yeah. as we sat there talking. I wonder what it was like for your grandmother. To, you are the whitest looking person in the world. I so white. You're, you, I've used you as a reflector in photo shoots. Yeah. You are so pale. <laughs> and so I wonder what her experience was of looking at, what, like what her experience of family was looking at her grandchildren who are just so white. It's not just her grandchildren, her children as well. It's yeah. this fantastic family photos of like 
my grandmother and my great-grandmother, these two Middle Eastern ladies standing there with three white kids and it just looks like they stole them from somewhere. Like, you know, <laughs> where did you find those children? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's there. It's my grand, It's my mother and two aunties. But um, it really just the, the Scottish genes of my grandfather won at that <laughs> moment. Someone was telling me the other day that... Um... Disney re-released a bunch of their cartoons from the 30s and they're super racist. And they released a statement with them saying, look, we're not going to censor these because we don't want to pretend this didn't happen. So we're going to release these and we want to make apparent that we know that this is not appropriate anymore. But we're also not going to censor them because we're not going to pretend that these behaviours were not. How we thought about people. Like, is it enough to stand up and say hey, this is what we thought. Because I think maybe me being like, oh, I think it's good that we publish Huckleberry Finn with just a little note at the front saying, hey, this is how Mark Twain wrote this. This is not an appropriate use of language now, but we're publishing as it is. Is that enough? Is it enough to just put a little addendum and say, hey, we condemn this? At what point are you just excusing yourself for making money from something that's problematic? Well, I mean, it's either that or you put it away, right? Like, it's either that or you ignore it. Mm. And Huckleberry Finn, for better or worse, has not been ignored. Yeah. The one that I'm fascinated by is called The Education of Little Tree, and it was written by Forrest Carter, who wrote the very famous Segregation Now, Segregation Today, Segregation Tomorrow, that famous speech that I can't remember word for word. Um, That speech calling for segregation. Very famous segregationist, famous right-wing racist. And then he went off and he wrote this book glorifying Native American ways of life and posing as a Native American person to do it. Um, Just just mind-blowing. And he made up all the Native American words that are in it. That book is still a really big part of the curriculum and kids still read it. And it's known, it is known Mm. today that that entire book is bullshit. That blows my mind. That's one I think needs to be put away for 50 years and then taken out in 50 years' time and said... What the fuck was he thinking and what were we thinking, keeping it in circulation for another how many years after we found this shit out? It's been really interesting watching this discussion percolate in all areas of privilege and and watching people grapple with suddenly realising that actually they benefit from a system they'd never thought about. But um, Australians have this strange relationship with their past and it's interesting, we expect say, you know, like when we talk about Germany, we expect them to kind of own their history. You did a bad thing, so... And you must always live with that knowledge and shame and don't ever do it again. They've actually been excellent at that. Yeah, and we've we've been terrible at it. Yeah, this, this extraordinary disconnect from what is really very recent history. There's this sort of common trope of people are so sensitive these days and like, no, we actually just realize now how totally shit your actions can make someone else feel Mm. in a way that maybe 15, 20 years ago they didn't. Which reminds me of a conversation I had with my 90-year-old grandmother not long before she died when we were sitting watching TV. And she was like, there's such a lot of gays in the world today. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, yeah, well, I think there was a lot when you were young as well, Granny. They were all just in unhappy marriages, weren't they? And she's like, hmm... Stephen Fry's a gay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, he is, isn't he? And you quite like him. <laughs> like, hmm. <laughs> We're working towards some very slow 90-year-old paced mental changes there, but uh, never really got there. Mm. 
yeah, those sort of slow realizations and changes that society goes through, I feel them within myself, these gradual gainings of awareness of moments in my life when privilege has impacted my experience of the world. Yeah, this, God, it's just so important to, to suddenly have those moments where you walk into the force field and be like, oh, there's a wall here for people who aren't me. Mm-hmm. And I, did, I never saw it. It was always invisible to me, just watching the ripples in the force field when someone else tries to walk into it. Contact Mike is a monthly podcast about people by Flo Kilpatrick and Sarah Walker, produced by Kieran Ruffles. You can find us at contactmikepodcast.com. We would love it if you followed us on social media and reviewed us on iTunes. This has been Contact Mike. This episode's episode ends now. Now. Really where I have a right foot. And that's all, folks.